Oh, here, here, I'll start over again if we're recording. <laughs> so the, the Democrats like to make like a triple barrel gamble, right? They, they're like, okay, it's a 50-50 shot that whatever we try will like work in our favor or work against us. And then it's another 50-50 shot that anyone will try to hold anyone accountable if it fails. And then it's another 50-50 shot that we won't be able to overcome that failure with our messaging. So that's half of a half of a half. These guys are like, we got a seven out of eight chance of a version of success, and they never have to fucking try because seven out of eight is incredible odds. Well, and when you're like, when that whole strategy is underwritten by the idea that like, regardless of whether they get hit with electoral failure, like, right, they still get monetarily rewarded as consultants or like moving into fields as lobbyists or running again and getting the same interest funding them because they're like, Hey, you don't have to win as long as you just keep normalizing the idea that the only proposals we can ever talk about are pro ruling class ones. Yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, like we can't, we can't not vote for the Democrats because otherwise hundreds of thousands of people will die. <laughs> <laughs> no, Damn, I mean, Dan, yeah. Dan you're absolutely right. Like, they don't even need people to win. That was the whole thing with um, throwing all those candidates up against Bernie Sanders. Yeah. They're like Pete Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke are not, neither of them is going to be the president. We know this, but they're both very effective figures at corralling some kind of nebulous political enthusiasm into a very, very safe political space during the duration of the election. Yeah. And it's, and it's funny. Cause I think that like people th- will I think go a bit overboard sometimes on like how deter like the determinism on this like structural analysis and thinking that that means that every single, therefore every single member of the democratic party thinks in that, that sort of triangulation where it's like, no, it's, it's the other way around. It's that like the structure even shapes what the otherwise well-intentioned people are then able to do. Yeah. It doesn't matter how hard Ayanna Presley or Ilan Omar legislates. They are never going to get out from, uh, inside the structure that has been handed down by centuries of Nancy Pelosi's and Mitt Romney's and shit. Yeah. It's a lot like what we were talking about, like at the end of the overtime episode, that's going to be coming out in a bit where we were talking about like the function of NGOs. Yep. And, and how those are used to, you know, shape what, what could otherwise be actually useful revolutionary energy and, and move it into ways that are, are much more like friendly or at least less dangerous to capital. Right. Well, and it, 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 it convinces concerned citizens who might otherwise do something to actually improve people's conditions that all they really need to do is make a little donation to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right. write it off on their taxes, and, and done and done. You know, you helped yeah. the world. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, uh, it really sucks how effective of a demobilization tool that stuff is, and, uh, you know... That's yeah, why I we mean, have to build counter hegemony. <laughs> everybody's always saying, you know, become ungovernable, become ungovernable. Like, I don't really think I need to be ungovernable. I'm already impossible to stop. So, you know, <laughs> I can't be demobilized. My, my morale comes from it. I just have a Gnostic connection to morale from another dimension. So you can fuck up my material conditions all I want. It will ne- my morale will never dip. <laughs> Damn. I need to I know. that. It's a superpower, basically.
and on the note of just utterly dissecting the Democrats and the liberal capture of radical power, hello, everybody. Uh, <laughs> welcome to another episode of Work Stoppage, your favorite anti-Democrat podcast. <laughs> Technically yeah. true. Um, Technically true. <laughs> well, it's just anti-bourgeois electoralism. Sure. Yeah, we're not. We're not. Well, because that's the thing. Like, it really, this is the problem with set theory, right? Is like you have the set of all podcasts that are anti-democratic and that contains us and like Tucker Carlson and like, that's Joe not Rogan. a coherent set. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this no. is work stoppage, uh, your favorite labor podcast. We are entirely listener supported. So thank you so much for any money you send us on Patreon. That does also entitle you to listen to the bonus episodes, which are very good. I must say they're really quite good. It's a lot of Dan just dropping knowledge bombs. So if you like that kind of thing, uh, definitely check those out if you haven't already. If you're not in the Discord, that's just ridiculous. Just you know, do yourself a favor and uh, throw us a five star review wherever you think it will help. Some people say Apple Podcasts. Uh, some people just say wish it really hard. Just <laughs> wish that people would know about our show, and that'll work that's really right. good too. Write a review it- on Wish.com. Of <laughs> <laughs> we're improving our SEO through like the power of the secret (laughs) (laughs) yeah we are going to gain friends and influence people but uh (laughs) speaking of influencing people we wanted to follow up with the republic services workers who have ended their strike and approved a contract with wage increases for the workers so always nice to start on a good note and uh, always nice to start on a sanitation note because um they're a fun focal point of labor history (laughs) yeah so we talked about this strike just a couple of weeks ago um these these sanitation workers who have been, you know, striking in San Diego for about a month now. Um, and this, you know, uh, it's, it's, there's some good and there's some bad in like most of the, the stories that we cover about new contracts and for, for unions in the U S uh, like to start off with the good stuff here, as we reported in the last time we talked about this, they were only being offered a dollar an hour raise by Republic services. And in this new contract, they ended up getting uh, just about double that. So workers are going to get an immediate raise of just under $2 an hour. So their base pay will be going up to 2650 an hour. Uh, And then over the course of this five-year contract, which is, you know, one of the lesser great parts of this, that it is a five-year contract, um, their wages will go up another $3 an hour. And also included in here, workers did get any some improvements to their health insurance plan, and they're getting a thousand dollar signing bonus, which is you know a nice little extra thrown on there. But some of the issues that I was reading about, like with regards to this, and even in on the the Teamsters, like their own press release about it, they admitted that there were were issues with this, which really seem to kind of cut to the whole, just the size and scale of how big like Republic services is and how many different communities that they cover, which of course, you know, makes it when you have like all these disconnected individual local units of the company and they're not on the same bargaining schedule, it can make it difficult to apply company-wide pressure. Mm -hmm. And they pointed out uh, both in the Teamsters article and also in a, an article about this on liberation news that while this, the workers who have been on strike absolutely won gains, they got a, a better deal than they would have gotten the, had they not gone on strike. Mm-hmm. They're still getting significantly lower wages than have been paid to workers in nearby Orange County 
and lower wages than like even workers in Seattle and Seattle has a pretty comparable or even in some areas of Seattle, like lower cost of living than San Diego. And so, you know, there's been, I've seen plenty of quotes of, of some, you know, mixed feelings from, from some folks who are on this picket line about accepting this contract. Right. Absolutely. I mean, like you said, especially with these really large companies, like Republic is nationwide, right? Like yeah. I think they have offices here in Michigan as well. Yeah, they're um, huge. And uh, when when you have to organize like shop by shop against these huge yeah. multinational or just national corporations, like we see this with Starbucks as well. It's like very encouraging to see the baristas organizing, but it's also a little bit tough when it's kind of geographically localized to one region of the country. And it's like, well, Starbucks is one of the biggest retail chains in the world, you know? Yeah. So we had a quote here from a worker at Republic and a, you know, member of Teamsters Local 542, Rafael Mejia, who said, this is one of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to make. We are fighting for dignity and respect on the job, but we also know that the strike has been affecting our communities and our neighbors and our families. This contract isn't everything we believe we deserve, but it's enough to go back to work and go back to taking care of our communities. That's a rough sentiment, honestly, like, uh, especially just because of the pressure from which I think is the the next bullet point in our in our notes here about like the. Uh, the the mayor basically, you know, saying that this is, you know, on the workers, this is all their faults and, and, uh, and that there, there's this like social pressure of, it reminds me again, uh, going back to when we talked about the Bessemer, Alabama, uh, unionizing drive, which I had referenced a, I think a, uh, Volvo, uh, organizing drive that had happened where basically they organized the community against the union which destroyed the union push because a lot of these people are very interconnected. They are, they are really affected by when people are like, I need my trash to be taken. And the company's like, well, you know, then you have to take this concession in order to support your community. And, and it's really, uh, it's really sad when the kind of community is mobilized against these workers, especially when really it would be much more suited for them to have a more symbiotic relationship of, you know, the community uh, and even the people in power, like the mayor, uh, actually saying that they, they support the workers and that they, and that fucking Republic needs to actually give a significant like increase to these conditions. Uh, Yeah. But, um, don't you think maybe the politicians would have been less hard on these union members if they had a Democrat mayor? Oh, wait. (laughs) Todd Gloria is a Democrat. Never mind. Well, well, and I think it, it also just points to some of the difficulties of when you have these sorts of services contracted to these giant corporations, because like the obviously there's been a lot of, you know, uh, displeasure in San Diego and Chula Vista during the strike of people who are not getting their trash picked up. And even if it was intended to at first to be well intentioned to put pressure from the city on republic services the pro like if they were like a small local like trash pickup company that would be one thing because you'd be saying look either give your workers a better contract or we're going to cancel it and you'll go out of business but if you cancel a contract with republic they're just like whatever we'll just fire everybody and keep our 25 30 40 50 100 other contracts and keep those going it's not that big of a threat to them and so one of the things that if you're going to be doing this sort of political pressure like if the team you know because the there have been multiple other 
strikes that the Teamsters have been involved with, with Republic specifically, is I think that, you know, obviously we don't think that it's a good idea to waste your time boosting politicians, but that doesn't mean that you can't apply political pressure. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that they would be served to fight for, at least as an alternative, as a threat, is to not just say, if if Republic doesn't settle and, and actually give the workers a better contract that we're going to cut our, our funding from Republic because that by itself is not that big of a threat to Republic. But if you pair it with, and we will then also municipalize trash pickup services, we will buy our own trucks. We will employ all the same people that Mm -hmm. like Republic is threatening to fire. Then you've got, an actual threat that keeps the workers supported. So if Republic comes back and says, we'll see they're putting pressure on us. You have to accept these concessions. They can be like, no, because the alternative isn't we accept concessions or get fired. It's you give us a better contract or we'll go work for the city. Right. And then you can actually put more pressure on them that way. Yeah. God, I wish but that it, we would see those sorts of pushes in, in, in um, all forms. There are like, Sanitation work is one really great example of a, of a benefit to the workers when the work is municipalized. But then, I mean, like there are just so many things. I always like to harp on the internet issue. Like there should yeah. be no yeah. private internet companies. There should mm-hmm. be no private electricity companies. Like the, yeah. the, those, the idea of making profit off of the, the things that people need to survive is, is absurd. And, and even if it does cost money, like we can do it together. That's part of the municipal or, organization of, of, of work. Well, and like, shockingly, if we all just paid taxes to pay for our electricity instead of paying an electric bill to an electric company, we would all pay less money and get better for internet, ditto for trash. Yeah. And the workers could make more money on the other end. Literally everybody wins except for the one, the one guy or the board of directors or whatever, whose like entire job it is to just siphon money off the top. In this case, Bill Gates. Right. In this case, Bill, Bill Gates. Bill Robinette Who- Gates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, Go, you know the software. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean, you meant, so like, yeah, this, this case is, you know, there's some wins here. They are getting a better contract than they would have otherwise got, but it is still frustrating that because of how big Republic is and because of the somewhat ineffective or just shitty strategy of, of the way that, that they were pressured. Like it ended up forcing the workers into accepting, you know, less than they they should have been rewarded. But, um, you mentioned though at the top about mm-hmm. the, uh, the workers at Starbucks who have been unionizing and, and we've, we felt there's been so much movement on that front. We got to check back in with Starbucks workers United cause they've been really busy. That's right. Yeah. They've got, uh, a le- oh, wait, is it uh, 26 stores? Yeah. That yeah. are now like I just we were so excited when it was three like oh the Buffalo area's got <laughs> yeah. three stores mm-hmm. this is really exciting oh yeah two uh, uh, two uh, thirds of them have have one oh, wow this is very exciting now we have twenty six stores like yeah. all well, all over in in your in Oregon <laughs> Eugene Oregon <laughs> Tallahassee Florida Hopewell New Jersey Cleveland Chicago Richmond Virginia Chesterfield Virginia. Uh, and another store in Mesa, Arizona. So if you're in any of those places, keep an eye out for opportunities of solidarity. Go in there and uh, tell, well, you know, be safe, but, you know, tell the workers that you support them. Yeah, well, walk in and be like, hey, 
Heard you got an anti-union text from the company, you know, because the of course the company is stepping up their anti-union drive to an, an insane degree, sending emails and texts to all their workers at the Mesa, Arizona store who are uh, beginning to vote on their union election this week, uh, telling them to vote no and forcing workers into mandatory two-on-one meetings with management, which is an interesting strategy. Starbucks always has to be a little different. They're like, it's not a one-on-one. <laughs> It's a two on one. You outnumber <laughs> us two to. Oh no! Wait, there's two managers and it's you. Never yeah. mind. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh! I've been in. I've been in the room with two managers. That was the day I was getting fired because they knew that they Oof. had to have two of them there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That honestly, that sounds like uh, pretty awful. But considering what we've we've seen from some of the other folks, I. I do wonder how effective it is because we've heard from so many like individual folk like members of Starbucks workers United that like a lot of the tactics they've been using just have been inspiring them to support the union even stronger because it just makes it so clear how desperate Starbucks is to stop the union from succeeding. Yeah. Well, I mean, Starbucks has painted themselves into a corner over the years by constantly like spouting quote unquote progressive rhetoric and all of this other shit where I don't think they have the same freedom that like a McDonald's has to just be like, fuck you. This is the yeah. contract. Get back to work. They have to pretend like they've been nice the whole time. They have to always like, you know, post hoc be like, we were in the right the whole time. And uh, I think that 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 doesn't sustain the contradiction as well as just like straight up ordering your employees to get back to work. And so it's providing a space in which Starbucks employees are just like, well, this is fucking ridiculous. You know, every time Starbucks inches a little bit more forward with the anti-union shit, you know, like millions of Starbucks employees, you know, hundreds of thousands, whatever, across the country are are perking their ears up and they're like, maybe we should get a union going too. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I mean, to your point, even when they're doing what I think are pretty clear threats, mm -hmm. they still have to veil it in this like passive aggressive, like we're just looking out for your best interest sort of things. Cause like you mentioned in those, those emails and texts, they're telling people to vote. No, they, they have it couched this way. Quote, we want you to vote. No, there is no opt out. If the majority of voters vote yes. And my recommendation is to wait and see what happens in our one store in Buffalo. Negotiations can often take more than a year. If a contract is reached at all. There is no opt-out from an election is the funniest <laughs> shit I've ever heard in my life. Like, did you know that if you vote for a governor and the person you voted for doesn't get elected, there is no opt-out? That's your governor now? <laughs> what yeah. are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, and the whole negotiations can often take more than a year, which is true. Mm -hmm. But again, an indication of like how anti-union the environment in the U.S. is. Right. They're and, saying and, we intend to stall for as long right, as possible. Right. Exactly. That's the thing is that was the part that I thought was so interesting about that was it just seems like such a clear indication that despite all of their otherwise, oh, we'll work with the union, blah, 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 like messaging they've been putting out since the success of the Buffalo stores, like it seems pretty clear that they're going to drag their feet as long as possible to try and, you know, fuck this whole thing up as much as they can. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the main tactics of Littler Mendelssohn, which is the same law firm that I've mentioned before that I dealt with, with the unionization effort that we had and the stores that had unionized before us had unionized three, 
four years before and didn't have a contract because of consistent uh, labor, unfair labor practices. And then when we finally went to the table, they still jerked us around the whole time. Like they, like Littler Mendelssohn, they are professionals at doing this shit. They know that it's going to be difficult and they're going to make it difficult. And they're going to be like, well, but it's difficult. So why don't you just not like, (laughs) Yeah, well, and I mean, to your point, like the the workers at the Tallahassee store that are organizing sent a letter to the CEO complaining about Littler Mendelssohn saying, we are aware of your partnership with the notorious union busting law firm Littler Mendelssohn. We are not intimidated by such blatant tactics. We are emboldened to join our fellow partners across the United States as we stand for what is right. We are outraged that partners you claim to care so deeply about are being mistreated, gaslighted, and harassed in their own stores due to your union-busting efforts. I mean, that's and, pretty on point. Yeah, and so and there were also, like, in the, the Hopewell, New Jersey store, the workers there sent a very similar letter. But it's this is, like, one of the things that, I, for me at least, has been so inspiring about this union drive is there's, it's, you know, it's speed and, like, the breadth across the country that it's been going. But also, like... The, the, the Starbucks Workers United folks have no fear about like confronting the management all the way up to the CEO level and calling them out explicitly on this sort of bullshit. And it's been refreshing to see. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think like in a similar vein to what I said before, like Starbucks workers are just tired of everybody being like, oh, Starbucks. That's such a good yeah. job, isn't it? Don't you love working there? No, no. it's no. horrible. <laughs> like, so I think the contradictions are a little extra heightened for them. And maybe that's why like so many stores have lit off with unionization drives. Right. And I don't want to discount people who who do say that, you know, it was a it was maybe like usually the, the line is it was one of the best jobs I've worked at because but that should be more of an indictment of jobs in the United United States than anything, because if really going there and uh, feeling any level of of like comradeship is like your standard. Because sometimes it does feel nice, you know, like you have a good team or whatever, but like any team can be good. But I, I just really think that if you actually look at the conditions that Starbucks workers are in, they are not good. I, I mean, yeah. even even when we were getting paid $10 an hour for the most obscene shifts and the most awful thing, I still had people being like, well, it's one of the better jobs that I've had. That is awful. That is yeah. fucking terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, well, I'm- and I mean, to your point... There was an interview uh, with some workers that have been, you know, going through this organizing, specifically at the store in Seattle that's that's working on this with Jacobin, who uh, this this worker Rachel Ibarra who talked about how shitty the health insurance is there, and that being one of the big motivators, where she said health insurance with Starbucks is so expensive that when I don't get the hours I need, close to forty as opposed to the thirty-two ish I often end up with, it's pretty much the same as not having it at all. And they said, and and Rachel also said that that they also can't afford, often can't afford copays for care needed to quote reverse the damage that has been done to my body in the course of working in the food service industry. Yep, it'll destroy your fucking body. Uh, Starbucks baristas have an insane rate of carpal tunnel syndrome, just Mm. as one example, because operating the espresso machine is a repetitive motion that can. that can cause that to happen in pretty severe cases. And a lot of times if you have like a, a physical issue, whether it's work caused or, or not, 
and you start complaining about it, their response to that is to give you less hours, which like this employee <laughs> said, gets rid of your benefits eligibility. And now you don't have the health care for the issue that you got from being at the job that you got because it had health care. So it's just yeah. an incredible way to get fucked around, honestly. Oh my gosh, yeah. It's the the healthcare there uh has like one or two unique perks that if you really if you are there and you get those specific perks, they can be worth it, but the, uh that's one of the only things that can do it. If you're like, you know, a, a regular, you know, healthy, semi-healthy or maybe not even in that particular niche group, like it is going to be incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. Like I and and even then I I mean just the amount of money that I put into that fucking healthcare is insane yeah. insane. Yeah, it's fucking yeah. ridiculous. And well, and so one of the things that we've also learned over the last couple of weeks is that and we already kind of reported this as a win at the time because of the way the numbers look, but we now officially have a second store in the Buffalo area that is has has had its union election victory certified the genesee street store which we had originally reported when we talked about the the first elections in buffalo it looked like it was almost certainly going to be a win and the reason for that is that the original vote was 15 to 9 there were six uncounted ballots that were contested by workers united because they were ballots from folks that had basically people who had just been assigned to the store Mm -hmm. after the union drive started. So they had basically not worked there any time at all. And so the NLRB agreed with uh, the workers that it didn't make sense to count those ballots of folks who had basically just been hired within like the last like week or two, clearly by Starbucks's attempt to dilute the voting pool and, and turn it the other way with folks who hadn't had a chance to really learn what the job was like to have a good chance to, you know, fit in with the, the, like meet all their coworkers and, and learn about the organizing drive. You know, I'm just and, telling you this, these people haven't been on the, in the two in one meetings. We just can't count their yeah. votes. <laughs> right. Well, and they probably were also because of course, Starbucks corporate decides who works at what store. They were probably selected in some manner or another for like anti-union sentiment or like lack of receptiveness to organizational activity or, you know, whatever. Friends of management. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's finally been resolved. And so now we have two official stores in the Buffalo area that have succeeded and several more who have uh, elections coming up very shortly. And so, I mean, look, obviously I doubt that every single one of these, you know, 26 stores is going to have a union election, although we certainly hope they do. Uh, but the fact that it has spread so quickly to so many stores and is continuing to every day, like we didn't even mention there have been like, I think three stores in, in Boston that have, have, have over the past month or so have, have filed for election. And it's, it's, I mean, it's going to be really like nationwide, Probably like by the time people hear this, like there have been so many of these and it's, it's really one of the most inspiring drives going on right now because this is a level of, of organization of previously unorganized workers that just doesn't really happen in the U S anymore. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. like this is what we need. This is the sort of organizing organizing drives we need all over the service industry. And yeah. so like, it's just like why we think it's so important to pay attention to this. Cause we should be trying to replicate this like all across like the service sector. And so our next story is, is carrying on the, uh, the trend that we've been following, you know, since we came back from, well, really since the year started and Omicron mm-hmm. has surged throughout the world and 
so many capitalist governments have done less than the bare minimum <laughs> to protect people. Uh, we've been because we've been covering pushback from teachers and students here in the U.S. because of all the unsafe learning conditions. Mm-hmm. But there has, was recently, just last week, a huge uprising in France over this where last thursday teachers across france primarily centered in the major cities like you know paris and marseille and Lyon and the the other places but like across the country went on strike shutting down schools to demand a better covid response like the the strike was organized by educators wings of various unions the federacion uh i I, see this is the problem where i've been learning spanish and now it's going to train like i can't do french pronunciation anymore (laughs) to be fair spanish pronunciation is pretty consistent and french pronunciation is is one of the only languages that might be worse than english <laughs> yeah, so there's the, the Federation uh, Syndical Unitaire, the National Union of Autonomous Trade Unions, the General Confederation of Labor, Workers Force, a whole bunch of other, all, all sorts of unions across France that have, you know, teachers' wings in them. Mm-hmm. And across like Paris and other major cities, 75% of primary school teachers and 62% of middle and high school teachers join the strike. So that's a enormous that a huge portion amount of, of teachers. Like, wow. I, I, oh, I wish <laughs> I fucking yeah. wish. Right. Yeah. And I can't even get a snow day with a foot of snow on the ground. I'm just joking around. <laughs> but well, the other thing though, that I thought was so was especially great about this movement was that, I mean, the huge percentage of teachers shutting down the vast majority of schools. That's fantastic. But in addition that they did the outreach so that nurses, maintenance staff and critically parents also join the teachers in marching throughout the cities to demand like an actual protection plan for, Always for teachers and students. Always Damn. a must. You got to engage with the parents too. And that's, I mean, I we we see the the success the previous successes of the Chicago Teachers Union we saw them uh recently being one of the very few unions to actually stand up against the uh genocidal policies of the Biden administration and uh and but even then we didn't not see 75% of of the schools uh out there on the thing I I just I, I really wish we could take some uh, some notes from some of these really well-organized groups and to think that this is what we should be upholding and fighting for at the very least. Well, I mean, uh, not to advocate some kind of form of, like, incrementalism, I suppose, but in France, the situation is such that they, they have struck, you know, different sectors of workers have been on strike so many times in such recent memory uh, that there are, like, legal protections for this and stuff. If you're the parent of a student and you go out on strike with your kid's teacher, uh, you're a lot more protected than, let's say, an American factory worker who might try to do the same thing. And that's probably on purpose yeah. because, you know, if the teachers strike and then all the parents of all the kids they teach also strike, you've got half a general strike on your hands already. You know? Yeah. I yeah. mean, this is like the benefit of getting, like, because obviously you would prefer to be living even if you're in this situation, like, cause this is the, 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 the distinction that I'll point out, like, this is what you can do mm-hmm. if you are in a, you know, developed social democracy that has really high union density, but mm-hmm. still, I mean, it, it also points to limitations because of the teachers felt they had to do this in the first place because right. there was still that capitalist imperative from the, you know, neoliberal by 
European standards, like the Macron government to, you know, keep schools open, keep teachers and students in school. But because of the fact that there is a, there's somewhat more worker power there because of the higher union density, you can get this sort of broad organized pushback instead of the really scattered, uh, like just a few cities that have actual militant teachers unions that we're seeing here. Right. And so these and, teachers were specifically protesting against uh, what they called the indescribable mess in schools with the mm-hmm. COVID-19 cases surging and the shortage of self-test kits, which is a crazy thing to be running short on. I think I saw somebody who was like, in England, every person can order nine self-test kits a day or something. Yeah. And I was like, damn, in the US, a house with nine people in it gets four test kits like a week or a month no, or something no, like once, that. Once, ever. Once ever. God <laughs> damn. What yeah. the fuck? <laughs> yeah. And if you don't know where that link is, if you uh, haven't heard of where to get the free test, we'll put that in the episode notes for you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like, it, it's, it's not enough, but everybody who, everybody should take advantage of it. Like if they're mm-hmm. like, they're going to make the tests available, people should get them. And we have to keep demanding that they do more than this fucking band aid of a one time issue of four tests, which just to go off to continue on this tangent for a minute, the fact that it's by address and not by person mm-hmm. like is really skewed towards like, you know, white middle class, smaller families, single families, because it doesn't, yeah, the, it doesn't even cover the extra half kid, two parents yeah. and two and a half kids. There's like, yeah. You don't even have enough tests for the half kid. Well, and like, what if you live in an intergenerational home and you have exactly. to give all of your fucking tests to grandma because she's at the highest risk and there's really nothing to be done about it. And now you, you know, probably already not in a great economic situation, have to go out and spend your fucking money on the am I going to die tests, you know, right. that they don't even have at CVS because they're selling out so fucking fast. So, y- yeah. yeah, I saw somebody tweeted out the statistics where I think it was like about i think it was like 20 percent of of hispanic families are are, are multi-generational homes mm-hmm. and something like 13 or 14 percent of black families whereas only seven percent of white families are multi-generational homes I'm like oh okay well i guess i see why this this was crafted this way right um well and if we want to do something about it maybe we should fucking strike because as soon as yeah. they went on strike over in france the government agreed to distribute five million ffp2 uh masks euro equivalent of a kn95 to their teachers and immediately recruited recruit three and a half thousand contractual staff to fill gaps where teachers are absent due to illness or to deal with the crisis of COVID in general, you know, illness in their family or whatever. Yeah. Well, and I, the other thing that I really loved about the way the unions reacted to this, because like, yeah, okay. It's good that they got that. It's good that they, you know, forced the government to provide all the teachers with, with KN95 masks, but that's not, you know, that's like still just a one-time band-aid. That's not a structural solution. And it's, again, it's good that they're forcing the government to hire substitutes instead of forcing teachers to come in and work sick. Like we've seen here in the U S but again, temporary or, solution or lowering the standards where we've seen people who are yeah. eight, over 18 without a criminal record, be the only people or be allowed to be the substitutes for your, for your children in schools or, yeah. Or bringing in fucking cops to do it. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, I saw that one too. The fucking armed police, like like gun on their hip, tra- sitting there at the desk, smiling. Oh look at look at me, watch your children because this with is no a mask. daycare with a gun. <laughs> and they're all and and the cops are making like overtime doing that. Mm-hmm. 
on their already bloated police salaries. Meanwhile, we can't even pay teachers enough to buy the classroom supplies that they shouldn't have to buy in the first place. Yeah, and and New Mexico just signed either an order or a bill or something to allow them to use the National Guard to replace teachers during shortages. So, yeah, I mean... Literally, the United States will call in the military rather than let people work from home. Well, and it's also insane because when you call in the police or the National Guard, like imperial and, you know, propagandistic implications of that aside, you're also saying teaching is not skilled labor and anyone can do it, which is so far from the fucking truth. Teaching is one of the most specialized kinds of labor and like something that we don't really fully understand, like how learning or how teaching works. So to just up and replace children's instructors in the most, you know, these children are in the most malleable formative years of their life. And you're just like, okay, instead of, you know, Mrs. Kozlowski, who's been teaching you history for the last three years, now it's going to be like Sergeant Davies. And he, you know, and it's not acceptable. (laughs) It just puts the lie to these fucking concern trolls who are out there talking about how how dangerous and damaging remote learning and learning loss from having to do zoom classes is to the kids how about the learning loss from having the teacher be sick and then they have to go in where half their class is out with covid and their teacher in giant fucking air quotes is staff sergeant mcfuck over here from the new mexico national guard who's just doesn't know what what they're doing as far as teaching they're literally just admitting that they just want to warehouse these kids so they can force their parents to work. Absolutely. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, good, good on the, the fucking teachers out here getting some concessions and some protections. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause the rest of the news around the world is not, well, I mean, not around the world, but especially, uh, I mean, I guess around the world. I, I just don't want to include everyone because there are countries that have a COVID response that yeah. is, you know, actually effective, uh, just is not anywhere where capitalism is the ideal. Yeah. And I think like one just last note on this that I think that I did appreciate from one of these unions that they said after the announcement from the government that they were going to provide all those masks and hire those, you know, substitutes where they said, quote, following the discussions with union representatives and the ministers, a few announcements and commitments have been made, but they are still too blurry and way too many missing numbers. Very, very far from the account and claims of the staff. We will judge the actions. One thing is for sure, a strong mobilization scares the government. It's up to us to keep the pressure and mobilization to earn real advances. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's, yeah. you know, that's, that's exactly the, the posture we need all our unions to have on this stuff. Yeah. And exactly. I just... To, to put it in perspective outside of the, the school atmosphere, we can move to one of the more precarious workplaces, which if you are a worker in the United States, likely you have worked in food service. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be covering uh, a, a huge chain, which maybe even one of some of our listeners have worked at, uh, called Red Lobster where uh, they have basically been forcing almost two-thirds of their employees to work sick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, like, I mean, everybody... Everybody knows Red Lobster, even if you haven't worked there. Like it's huge, as you said, it's huge. They have over seven hundred locations in the U.S. and over fifty thousand workers, but. Less than 12% of those 50,000 workers get any paid sick leave whatsoever, Mm -hmm. which like, 
the fact that Red Lobster workers, a lot of them don't get paid sick leave is probably not a surprise to any of our listeners because this country is monstrous and doesn't provide paid sick leave to people generally. But their conditions are bad even by our already shitty baseline because across the food service sector, 30% of workers get at least some paid sick leave and Red Lobster's percentage is less than half of that. Right. And and so that's had the predictable result, which is that 63%, well over half, almost two thirds of Red Lobster workers who were surveyed said they've had to work while sick. And 43% of them have worked sick because they feared getting in trouble for calling out. And nearly one in four said they were directly pressured to work sick by their manager. Yeah. Well, it's like uh, it's like that Twitter post or, or meme or whatever that was going around recently where it was like, manager in the group text, uh, hey, if anybody is sick or has any COVID symptoms, I need you to stay home. Absolutely do not come into work. Do not show up. Do not infect anybody else. Manager the next day when I call in sick with symptoms, how bad is it? Are you able to stand? <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. No, every that's time, the thing. It's... I, I and I do feel like that like one of the results of how like fucked up our like just general anti-worker like the the very petit bourgeois ideology behind so much of you know American culture mm-hmm. is there's that whole idea that like working sick like builds character and <laughs> and, and and the idea that you know that like asking off for being sick is like you know some sort of a weakness which is bullshit in anytime especially when you're working in fucking food service but i do feel like that attitude still carries over even now during the pandemic yeah yeah i mean it's 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 a weird (laughs) mix of like fucking calvinism and capitalism where it's like uh bad times make you a better person so you should live the worst life possible so you can be the best person when you you know die or whatever yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I can go back to my experience at Starbucks where my boss would would like be like, oh, yeah, I've got all of these health issues. And yet I push through as like right. some sort of example of a like like she like we should aspire to that. And I'm like, yo, I'm sorry for you. Like, I'm yeah. sorry that you actually have to like feel like you have to do this and are forced into these situations and that you feel compelled to force that on other people because of this awful burden that's been hoisted upon you. Yeah, it really sounds like if, if, you, if you're saying shit like, oh, well, I have health problems and I'm still working, it's like, wow, I'm really sorry you were never taught to value yourself or take yeah. care of yourself. That's, that's yeah. pathetic and, and, you know, pitiable, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, they have examples in here because a lot of this is is from this report from More Perfect Union. And specifically, there's this this uh, research firm like Popular Information that published this this long report where they'd interviewed all these workers. One worker they talked to mentioned that at their location, they had 15 people sick with COVID. They never once closed. They never once did a deep cleaning. They kept the place running. They They never shut down to let people take time off to recover. And I mean, we, because we don't have contact tracing in this country, I can, we can only imagine how many further COVID infections that caused or what the potential permanent, uh, you know, lifelong consequences are going to be borne by the workers that were forced to come in and get sick and and get sick and spread it to their other coworkers at a very minimum. Yeah. Well, I mean, like uh, early in the pandemic, everybody was concerned about like so-called super spreader events, like concerts, you know, large gatherings of people, whatever. And that's a fair concern, I think. But uh, 
there was no attention paid to the greatest super spreader event of all, which is everyone go to work now in the same building. (laughs) Like literally almost every adult in the country is forced into a room with some other adults every day. But like, we're worried about like, if we look at even some of the original protections that we saw where there was maybe half dining or or takeout only and like those those still being dangerous situations but those were and and sure the vaccine makes a slight difference but wouldn't it be a uh, kind of a good thing to keep those sorts of protections along with like the vaccine so that we could actually do something about the pandemic even if we are going to force people into work couldn't we give any level of protection i mean the the fact is is that we are not we're not in like the joe biden is specifically that we're not doing anything even close to something that someone could consider a lockdown like seriously half of like if you were to cut down uh occupancy of your building in half that's considered a lockdown to people these days Right. Like, well, and uh, speaking of the Biden administration, uh, Red Lobster has been echoing the the style, aping the style of the Biden administration by rewarding their workers for working through the pandemic with signs around the workplace that say, <laughs> yep. thank you, heroes, and a three and a half dollar lighthouse glass full of candy. Not oh, even not- a fucking pizza party, my friends. This is a fucking downgrade from the pizza. <laughs> Wow, I yeah. when you said you say three dollar and fifty cent, and I was hoping uh, per hour raise until not even close. no, 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 a, a one time one day uh, mug that they get mass produced for themselves and some dollar store candy. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. gonna give you three dollars worth of candy and a thank you sign to fuck off. That's what Red <laughs> Lobster is saying to their employees when they do this shit. Yeah, and and their response, you know, because of course. They've got a corporate office. They're going to try and try mm-hmm. and spin this in a positive light. Claim, oh no, we we care about our employees. Well, so their response about workers, they they of course say that they tell workers never to work while sick, which is, means nothing when you know all your management is forcing your workers to come in and and forcing them to try and find a replacement for their shift if they do have to stay out. But they point out that they have a program. The Red Lobster Cares Employee Emergency Assistance Fund, which Mm. provides cash assistance up to $1,000 for unexpected emergency or catastrophic disaster. Wow, the company pays for that? Well, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so that's that's the rub with that is they keep trumpeting this fund, but it's not paid for by the company it's a pool of funds from the workers themselves it's it's paid for by a deduction from their paychecks yeah which red lobster tries to sell to their employees as being part of the lobster life which i (laughs) have to imagine is what you call it when you sit around watching jordan peterson videos on youtube (laughs) or something i'm not sure yeah i mean to, and it maxes out at a thousand per person. They have d- distributed uh, these funds to uh, it said five hundred and sixty-one people out of the fifty k that they had, which meant that not not people are not getting a thousand dollars each. And mm-hmm. then even then, I bet that the comp like the loss in wages from being sick and all and like the fact that they don't offer health care in many cases uh it, it equates it equates to a lot more than a thousand dollars and this is really oh, just 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 uh, a scapegoat for the actual problems that they're hoisting upon their employees yeah i mean a thousand dollars in the first place is just it, it, 
it's a derisive amount of money. It's like you, you know, if I'm having a serious health crisis in the United States and you hand me a thousand dollars, you may as well just slap me in the mouth at that rate. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the fact that they distributed this money to 561 people, when again, this survey says that fit 63% of the workers have had to work sick, which right. out of this 50 K would be about 30,000 people, not 560 people. So, and the fact that it's, that it's just so frustrating to see them type this up as a benefit when they aren't paying for it. It's like the, the workers are being told that it is a benefit from the company when they use their own money to help their other coworkers, which I'm like, okay, well, that is a very solidaristic thing. Maybe if it's the worker's responsibility to pay for their co-workers sick time maybe they should be the ones getting the profits from the goddamn company <laughs> because they're the ones paying for all the benefits so right. like what is the company doing in 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 this case here like nothing they're just leeches making 190 million dollars in one quarter is what they're fucking yeah. doing which if you divide it by the number of employees they have is $3,800 per employee per quarter that they're just like yeah this is all ours now in one thing that you know this carries over uh, you know some of the same information that we kind of saw a lot when we were talking about the king supers workers last mm -hmm. week when we were just generally talking about the atrocious sub poverty wage conditions that are faced by so many you know workers in america in addition to this lack of sick time 29 percent of red lobster workers reported their pay was so low they struggled to pay all their bills and 18% of these workers who work at a restaurant, again, similar to the King Supers workers who are working at a grocery store, 18% of them struggle with hunger because their wages are so low. I like, can't get over how in the United States you can work in the food industry and go hungry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, like, that's alienation for you. Like, you read stuff like angles, like the conditions of the working class in England from mm -hmm. like the mid 1800s. And it's always when they, when they teach about that era in school, it's like the beginning of the industrial revolution. Look how poor everything was, but look how great everything is now. And it's like, people still can't afford to eat. They still can't afford rent. You still have workers working full-time jobs who are homeless, right? Like this is what, like it, capitalism produces these same atrocious living conditions and immiseration everywhere over all time. It's just better at dressing it up in ideology and media now. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it does exactly right. I mean, the same old like capitalism brained boomers who will be like, is your life really so much better with a cell phone? If you bitch at them about like, Hey, it's way harder to buy a house. Now everything's more expensive. The cost of everything is going the fuck up. I, my wages aren't keeping up with inflation. They'll turn around and be like, yeah, well at least you have a cell phone. <laughs> Man, shut yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like the, that old Fox News graphic that was like, "Oh, we we always hear about people struggling in air quotes poverty, but ninety nine percent of poor people have a refrigerator." What? And I mean, so really, how poor are they? <laughs> oh, I actually, literally, I was in I was in vibe chat the other night, and I brought this up, and people were like, "Well, I haven't, I haven't actually heard this one." I was like, "Really, you haven't heard this one? This is like one of the this is a huge talking point from conservatives." like oh yeah everything's fine because microwave because washing yeah. machine yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah no exactly and 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 to your point 
from before like John, like the, the company that owns red lobster, I had, I had thought they were still a member of like Darden, which is the gigantic restaurant conglomerate that owns, um, Olive Garden, but oh, they divested I, from them a few years ago. I was going to say, now, I thought they were owned by Nestle, which also owns Taco Bell. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Uh, no, they are owned by a giant, uh, like seafood supplier conglomerate Thai union, which as you said, made 190 million in profits in one quarter last mm-hmm. year. And red lobster's annual revenue is $2.5 billion. And to tie this story in with another one of our favorite subjects, Thai Union has been caught in the past using slave labor in its seafood processing plants in Southeast Asia. So mm-hmm. that's the sort of, you know, folks that are are benefiting from the hard work and the sub-poverty wages and the literal hunger of these, you know, 50,000 red lobster workers here in the U.S. Yeah, I bet if we could hear directly from them they would say something they would say something like oh you should be thankful to die at the at the at the <laughs> store because at least yeah. you're not the slaves that we employ yeah i mean and yeah. like don't think that we're exaggerating at all this independent audit in 2018 of thai union found a quote lack of policies and procedures in place including for example covering child labor forced labor recruitment fees human trafficking or uh, inhuman treatment which is like that's that's straight up slave labor and then yeah. like i don't know it, it hurts a little bit i've never even been to a red lobster uh i've driven past the one here in holland like a million times since i was a little kid and every time my family was like do you want to go there it was like absolutely fucking not uh i think lobster should be green but um <laughs> uh, the thing about it is is it's like i always knew it as like this staple you know um f- fast casual sit down whatever but mostly for old people right and it turns out it's it's just like the McRib. It's just like a giant international company is like, yeah, we have this red lobster wing to control the price of market seafood that ends up at your table. We have a shrimp surplus. New shrimp scampi at Red Lobster. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? No, absolutely. No, you're right. So anyways, fuck Red Lobster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Call me um, back when you got purple lobster. And and like we were talking about, you know, with the Starbucks story, like we need unions to be organizing the unorganized. And the most class conscious people I've personally usually met are the folks in the shittiest jobs. Yeah. And this sounds like a real shitty one. So I don't know, UFCW, SEIU, I think you got a pretty good place to target, <laughs> you know, for folks to organize. It's not, I know it's not easy with the franchise model and the high turnover rate at places like this, but fuck like the democrats aren't going to solve this problem like no we need we need actual worker organizing to do it yeah well in our final uh story of this week we're actually going to i think we actually covered a little bit about this uh the be- the beginnings of this protest but in south korea there have been uh, massive protests that are are related to the poverty crisis the immense debt that people are in uh and uh we've seen many many like in a lot of international situations many unions and organizations coming together to create an actual opposition to the powers that be and Mm -hmm. uh so as with our normal attempt to be more lighthearted at the end of the episode we're going to try to keep that going here (laughs) well what's interesting about the the crises that they're responding to in south korea is that if you're um from the united states you might not be really familiar with the kind of issues that they have in places like south korea and japan in particular because they're propped up 
by our government and they're often used as some kind of like techno futuristic like capitalism is good kind of semi-utopia where they're like look at all these bright lights and colors and and all hours clubs and everything you know isn't capitalism great but then if you go to those countries and you talk to the people who work in these clubs and these factories and all of these different things it's like they're experiencing the most heightened contradictions of information age capitalism that you possibly can because that's where the United States like offloads all of our like the future is difficult shit. <laughs> yeah, I guess I should be careful with terms like lighthearted. I guess I meant more like the the demands list of from these people is is awesome. Oh yeah, the the <laughs> workers movement is is fucking dank, but it's just a uh, it, it's just I, I think a lot of Americans have like weird maybe, you know, remnants of orientalism living in their notions about like what life in East Asian capitalist society is like and it's it's not um yeah and i mean well mm-hmm. that's the propaganda image that right. that are that we're sold through you know the ideological state apparatus which mm-hmm. is that like as to hold up you know say like life in seoul or life in tokyo mm-hmm. as this you know really urbane like middle class like as you said the techno futurist situation you know all the stories about how fast the internet is right in seoul and and as as a alternative people don't need food anymore (laughs) (laughs) yeah but to hold it up as like an alternative image to the like horrifying image that we're given of say the dprk or even china Mm -hmm. and again as you were saying like it's completely distorted because some of the stuff that the folks at this protest were complaining about is the fact that nearly half of all workers in South Korea are irregular workers that like you've got this huge increases in so many countries of like deliveries for like, so you have a huge surge in delivery workers, but like here in the U S they're treated as independent contractors. And so there's all these violations of, of the, what, what labor law exists in South Korea for them. And at least 16 delivery workers have died due to overwork in the last year alone in South Korea. So and I mean, there's a whole laundry list of stuff that they, they had in here. They pointed out that Korean workers have some of the highest household debt levels in the world, which it's like, yeah, Squid Game isn't just like, you know, that goofy show that's on Netflix. It's like that the, the plot line comes out of some of these material conditions that exist there. It's like these critiques of capitalism that we're seeing coming out of like the, the film and entertainment industry in South Korea are mm-hmm. outgrowths of these problems. Like there's this, the giant debt levels yeah. you've got the worst suicide rate among countries with a population of over 10 million people, the worst gender wage gap among OECD member countries, the worst level of income inequality, the worst rate of occupational accidents and the lowest rate, uh, lowest tax rate on the wealthy. Yeah. And I mean, this is what happens when your country is essentially like a military vassal protectorate of the United States that is propped up with a bunch of money, which is that like we've, spent we've dumped so much money into their economy to keep it going and it only goes to the wealthy people and the idea is that like okay all the workers are going to be delivery workers and then they're going to get home and order delivery and it's all going to work out and it just does not fucking work that way yeah and one of the interesting things about the way that the workers are organizing in korea is that like having and because of you know the 
what was for decades a military government mm-hmm. just run as a you know puppet state of the u.s and is still a client state of the u.s just they have a you know your standard bourgeois democracy shell over it sure but having like explicit like communist parties is still illegal in mm-hmm. in south korea and so they have to have all of these different like non like explicitly you know, f- like far left groups to, to actually build these workers movements. And so you have this, but you still have the coming together of organizations like the, as we mentioned in, in previous protests, the KCTU, the, the, the Confederation of trade unions, the national Federation of farmers associations, the Korea democratic street vendors, Confederation and the national parcel delivery workers solidarity union. And one of the things I thought was really interesting about this protest in particular, and this, this was on Saturday and also it was very difficult <laughs> to find news about this in English. I, I had to like find Korean sources and translate them, but, um, using the internet, I, I don't speak Korean, right. <laughs> but, um, farmers in Korea make up around f- only about 4% of the population. So, you know, it's like a little bit like how in the U S like the agricultural work, like force is mostly agricultural laborers, not actual like mm-hmm. people who own farms, but they all, and they point out that like, because of the way like neoliberal urbanization of the, environment and, and the way the economy works in South Korea, almost half of all the farmers are over 65 in South Korea. And, and so that has led to all sorts of like issues with income disparity. It, it's meant that there has had to be an import of migrant workers to work on farms and you, which, you know, just leads to really rough working conditions for those migrants. Mm-hmm. And you have this massive income inequality. Uh, again, I think that so this is also a little bit like the U.S., where you see how difficult it is for most small family farms to operate, and most of of agriculture is dominated by gigantic monopolistic agribusiness. Right. And, and in in South Korea, the the difference between the bottom twenty percent of farmers and the top twenty percent is more than twelve times, like income ratio. And, and so that has just contributed to the gap between urban and rural incomes of being over 60%. And so that has led to this merging of these movements of the, the workers fighting back against the, the devaluation of labor, the forcing of people to be, you know, listed as independent contractors, the massive levels of debt with the farmers movement. And that is a really, really, that's why I put this story at the end, like that unity between the farmers and the workers is I think really encouraging and a really good sign for the movement there in in South Korea. I mean, it's a really powerful thing to have like urban industrial workers and, and rural agricultural workers working together. If only there was some kind of like really great shorthand for that, like a hammer and maybe a field (laughs) instrument of some kind, uh, uh, like a scythe or a smaller scythe, like a, like a sickle. Damn, that'd be wild. (laughs) (laughs) But Yeah. yeah, well, uh, I guess we could go over what their list of demands are for this particular action, which I think are really important, which the first one is to abolish irregular work and guarantee jobs for all workers, which I think is a really, really great thing. It's not it's getting rid of the uh, kind of independent contractor status that we Mm -hmm. see, like the Prop 22 kind of stuff that we see in the United States, which they're struggling with and guarantee jobs for all workers, which to me sounds like they're actually asking for a jobs guarantee, which is actually an older labor demand Mm -hmm. that is not as popular these days because a lot of people are fighting for healthcare right now in the United States. But uh, over there, it's good to see that that a uh, a jobs guarantee is uh, is something that they are willing to demand because that is a good thing. It mm-hmm. helps get rid of the uh, the 
what is it called the the um the reservoir of labor what is it called oh the reserve army of the labor. reserve yeah. army of labor yeah that's what it is um they want a just economic transition in the context of the climate crisis and digital transformation of industries uh obviously that's pretty self-explanatory climate crisis is a problem everywhere and and to have a response for it is necessary it's good that they're demanding that well and especially when uh three quarters of your national borders are coastline it becomes very important (laughs) during the climate crisis yeah absolutely uh they want guaranteed public housing education healthcare, child and elder care and transportation fuck yeah uh, labor rights to be guaranteed to spe- uh, specially employed workers such as insurance and courier workers and cargo construction engineers who are currently subcontractors. This uh, seems like a little bit related to the irregular work thing, though. I mean, I think subcontractors are not exactly the same as irregular workers in this context. Right. Right. Uh, and uh, to stop making street vending illegal, stop government crackdowns on street vendors, and recognize that street vendors are a critical are a critical part of the economy and society. Th- that one is so fucking critical too, because like uh, illegalizing street vending and single person businesses really, really does a great job of forcing people into gig economy and piecework mm-hmm. and, and Absolutely. really clears the road for those gigantic corporations to, to push people who might otherwise have just sold you like a delicious lunchtime treat off of a stand. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I I think that one of the demands that I usually is like, we need a a pub like a uh, a public commons where people can just mm-hmm. like do commons stuff, like be a street vendor. Uh, I mean, the technically, you know, they are our streets. We should be able to yeah. fucking sell our stuff in them. Yeah, well, um, a lot of cities in America have like public markets. You know, like I, the one in Milwaukee is the one that I really like the best. But they're not public markets. It's not a place where you can just set up a stall. They're like capitalist enterprises where like you get to run a business inside a business and then you're like, I'm a street vendor. And it's like, no, you work for Nestle. If you have the capital to pay for all the licensure and pay the right people, which of course, you know, they're like these folks who are doing this for their, you know, their, their day-to-day sustenance. They don't, they can't afford that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The next demand is uh, they want guaranteed minimum pricing on agricultural products. Basically the same thing that the farmers, workers in Mm -hmm. India were demanding. Well, at least protection because they, they did have some of those protections in India, uh, but they wanted to solidify them in law and and not have them gotten rid of whereas the people here are actually just trying to get their minimum guaranteed pricing right uh from what I, from what i've read so far um and to pass the agricultural and fishery disaster insurance act to protect farmers from natural disasters going back to the climate crisis and mm-hmm. all of these these agricultural issues they want mm-hmm. this one's my one of my favorites land reform so that farmers can own their own farmlands oh my gosh that that one that one is i don't know i always i always i always love it's land classic reform. for a reason yeah <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, abolish the unfair free trade agreements that uh, agreements and the realization of food sovereignty. Yeah, because like like so many of the various like U.S. client states, the U.S. forces a lot of countries into free trade agreements, mm-hmm. and then lets the U.S. like dump cheap products into their market, pushing their producers out of it whenever there's a surplus of something here in the U.S. Right which ends up being devastating for local producers. Yeah. But uh, that is that is the list that they uh, have so far, which to me sounds like socialism. 
I, I don't. Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah That's but why of, it's good. Of course, you can't. You're in, you know, they're in South Korea, so they can't say we're socialists. They have to be like, we are green, pro labor, progressive, <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, yeah. All those, those standard. It's, it's, I mean, it's kind of the same. It's the same reason why, like in Russia, the, the Bolsheviks originally had to call themselves the Social Democratic sure. Labor Party because of the ban on, on, you know, socialism. Right. But one of the other great things about this protest is that, you know, as we mentioned when we first talked about like previous ones, like the the government in South Korea has been trying to suppress protests because, and they're using the 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 COVID crisis as an excuse, saying no, we can't have people gathering together. It's not safe. Even though every one of these protests, we've seen example after example of these folks following social distancing rules. Right. I don't think I've seen a single picture of like a single unmasked person at one of these events. Like they, they have their like COVID protection protocols down. Well, and like, it, it's, it's also an insane thing for to, to be told where it's like, don't protest. You could spread COVID go back to work instead. You won't spread COVID yes. there. What? What? <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. And yeah. so in order to like prevent them from being able to disrupt this, they didn't announce the location of the, the protest until the day of. So there was no chance for the police to set up anything to block them from getting there. <laughs> so they all just basically, they sent out, you know, a mass message the day of the event that where they had the people signed up and they're like, we're meeting at this park. And so you had 15,000 people converge on there. And all the police did was they set up a few barricades outside the park after the people had already shown up. And then we're like over a megaphone being like, you have to disperse <laughs> COVID says it's not safe. But there's 15,000 of you and we can't actually do anything. Please disperse. Yeah, please disperse. <laughs> I am literally begging you. <laughs> yeah. And, and so the event went off as planned. Again, they had like 15,000 people there. They, they had speakers from a bunch of the progressive parties that are, are, are there that like workers have set up to, you know, to actually try and advance their, their views outside of the two major parties that dominate mm -hmm. South Korean politics. And I mean, I, I just think that these series of protests that we've seen have been so impressive in the level of organization. And so I really hope, you know, they continue to gather steam because the stuff that they're asking for, that's what people need. Like yeah. the, the, the problems that have been seeping into Korean society since the IMF reforms of like the late eighties and early nineties, that's like, you know, it's the same neoliberal agenda that we've pushed all over the world. And this is the only sort of stuff that can fight back against it. And so mm -hmm. like, I think it's great to see. And, and we, and that's why like, you know, we like to publicize it because we got to take notes on this sort of stuff and learn from Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in the thought of uh, building up steam, let's let off some steam with the meme that's review. Right. Hey. Uh, <laughs> we are going to start this one with, you know, the classic, uh, uh, Vince McMahon, you know, getting excited and falling back in the chair, like, uh, categories. I mean, is the first one where he's like kind of excited is the minimum wage should be $15 an hour. And then, you know, almost leaning back in his chair is the minimum wage should be $30 an hour. And then the one where he's losing his mind is this Wendy's sign that says now hiring days, nights, $1,600 per hour. <laughs> <laughs> Hell Yeah. Honestly, like the abuse that 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 Wendy's drive-through people have to go through, I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
1600 bucks an hour should be the, the minimum wage. <laughs> Maybe not everywhere, but for fast food specifically, because that is the hardest and worst job. Let's be real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and the then, next one is a Ralph getting thrown through the window <laughs> meme. Ralph from from uh, The Simpsons. Uh, and it's, uh, my kidnapper is returning me after listening to me talk about unions for two hours. <laughs> the, the other thing that I loved about this, though, was that we originally found it because it was posted by a Teamsters local. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I also love the premise of it. Like, I love the idea of getting kidnapped by some guys. And I'm like, so you guys didn't get paid much at your jobs? You had to do this? <laughs> I bet if you had a union, you wouldn't have to kidnap anybody. <laughs> after like, yeah, after long enough, they're like, oh, shut up. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this guy doesn't have any money. He cares about unions. <laughs> and so, like, uh, so wait, did you all, you all voted on this or is someone telling you to do it? Because, you know, you deserve democracy in the workplace. I get it that you're kidnappers and this is what you got to do. Oh, yeah. Like- you're asking them, you're like, Who, who's in charge around here? And they point at a guy and you're like, oh, that guy. You guys really take orders from that guy. <laughs> You, you got to elect a way better steward than that. Let's right? do this right. <laughs> so, so the next one we've got, we've got, you know, your classic Titanic meme. You got the two panels. The first one is the, it's nose down Titanic's going down, but it's the 2021, 2022 school year. And then we've got the, the, the classic, you know, the band playing on the, the deck of the sinking Titanic labeled as teachers and parents, because that's, you know, that's basically what the government is, is doing with its policies right now. Yeah, I, I love the guy on the right who's like looking into the distance with concern. <laughs> <laughs> like perhaps this is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's always expected of of like the working class that like we're going to go down with the ship, right? Like we are the faithful stewards of of the economy, uh, and so we we get none of the money and take all the responsibility. What don't a wonderful Don't be a system. faithful steward of the economy. Don't do it. No, I, yeah. I, I implore you, don't fucking do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so the next one, yeah, so this is from at Tim Ross Comedy, um, but this is, I feel like, uh, pretty much in line with the story we were talking about with Red Lobster, where he's got, give a man to fish and he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish, buy the pond, tell him he can't have the fish, but he can fish for you. And you sell the fish and give him a very small cut. And then he'll say stuff like, I'm hungry and my teeth hurt. Nobody wants to fish these days. (laughs) (laughs) It was funny. Like the whole post is funny, but when he caps it off with nobody wants to fish these days, it it really seals it for me. Like what an excellent post. (laughs) Yeah. And then our final one is the, uh, is some bare shelves in the supermarket, uh, captioned you may not like it but this is what peak capitalism looks like (laughs) (laughs) and this one i have seen i've seen so many posts lately because you know because of the decision to quote unquote keep the economy open Mm -hmm. by forcing people to go back to work the predictable result of hey everybody got sick which means that all the people that work in logistics, a lot of them got sick. All the people that work in food processing, a lot of those people got sick. A lot of your grocery workers got sick. Mm -hmm. And so Hey, we're having, you know, supply chain disruptions because of that. And I've seen so many fucking posts that are like, oh, this is crazy. There were so many empty shelves at my local store. This is very Soviet. (laughs) Just like, Uh, we're literally in the most capitalist country on earth. What are you talking about? Taking a photo (laughs) of of a Ford production facility and just being like, ah, Bolsheviki, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. It's, It's. it's just so well, I mean, the best ones I think are those, 
those supermarkets where they have the like vinyl sheeting mm-hmm. that they put up over the empty shelves so it looks like there's stuff on the shelves. Uh, that's the most disgusting. Or like when they put little sticker decals on the interiors of like freezer and fridge windows so yeah. it looks like there's product in there. And then that's also confusing because with uh, all of the shortages, like they'll do that, but then when they do eventually get product in, it's not always the same shit they had before. So you're like, yeah. oh, finally, they have orange juice back in stock and you open the orange juice cooler door and it's just like cream cheese everywhere (laughs) (laughs) yeah well on that note we're gonna wrap for the episode we really appreciate y'all listening if you want to help us out more go to patreon.com slash work stoppage and shoot us five dollars and you can get access to our history of the repressive state apparatus the nature of the state episodes uh detroit i do mind dying the history of the afl cia all sorts of really great evergreen content that will you know, keep you listening for a while. I'm there's actually quite a bit there. Uh, follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. I almost forgot for a second. And <laughs> and uh, as always, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever, everybody. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>